Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Welcome to Canaan Bound Podcast, a podcast designed to offer the Christian rest during life's journey. Canaan Bound Podcast features devotional segments by pastors serving in the Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Synod along with church history, mission news, and music by various Christian artists who support our teaching. My name is Philip Wells, and I will be your host for this episode. This is episode 150. We begin our time this week with a devotion from Pastor Timothy Smith on Leviticus. This is God's Word for You. Leviticus 1.1 Then the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Which came first, the tent or the sacrifices? Leviticus begins precisely where Exodus ends, at the entrance of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. In our translation, God first gave instructions for the building of the structure, and only then, after the structure was built and the glory of the Lord filled it, did God give instructions concerning the sacrifices to be made there. In fact, the book's first words, then the Lord called, show that this book follows immediately after what happens in Exodus 40, verse 35. After building the special tent and its tented-in courtyard, along with all of the elaborate bronze and gold fixtures and equipment, the Lord called to Moses and let him know that it was time to begin the rites that would take place there. In this way, there was no question as to what should have priority, the tent or the sacrifices. The tent came first, and only when it was done would anything else happen. There could be no question as to whether the sacrifices should begin at once or whether they should wait until everything was completed. This removed the temptation that some might have had, pious though it might have been, to complete just the altar first, Uh, so that the sacrifices could be made while all the other construction proceeded, you know, piecemeal. The Lord wanted a resting place for the holy ark of his covenant and the surrounding structure all in place, from the holy place to the surrounding curtains and everything in between. And then when all this was done, the sacrifices could begin. We can apply this to the preparations we make before the reception of uh, the Lord's Supper. The Bible teaches us that recipients might be instructed, must be instructed first before partaking of the sacrament, that's Hebrews 5.13, that they must recognize what the sacrament is, that's 1 Corinthians 11.29, that they must be able to examine themselves, that's 1 Corinthians 11.28. Everyone who eats and drinks the Lord's Supper is participating in the actual body and blood of Christ, that's 1 Corinthians 10.16. So if a person were to come and take the Lord's Supper apart from faith in Christ or apart from their repentance over their sins, they would be guilty of sinning. That's 1 Corinthians 11, 27 to 29. This is one reason why we practice close or closed communion, forbidding those outside our fellowship from participating. We're not judging their faith. We want to keep them from sinning without understanding why it might be sinful. But that's only one reason for our closed fellowship in the Lord's Supper. There's also the question of the expression of fellowship, which is complete agreement in Christian doctrine. 
among all who take the Lord's Supper together. This is what Paul means when he says, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one loaf. That's 1 Corinthians 10, 17. So before we partake of the sacred bread, we must first enter the one tabernacle of the church as one body. Uh, outsiders are welcome, but only if they become part of the one body. The fellowship differences that kept the Samaritans and Jews apart, for example, were recognized by Jesus, who even pointed out that the Samaritans were wrong, as he also held out the true teaching to the woman at Jacob's well. You Samaritans do what you Samaritans worship rather what you do not know. We worship what we do know. It a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. This is why we want outsiders to come to worship, to hear the gospel, but ask them not to participate in the Lord's Supper yet until we are one in fellowship. First we enter into the tent, then we participate in the sacrifice. Leviticus is a book of divine truth. May God guide us as we read, as we submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit, and as we rejoice in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in Christ, I'm Pastor Tim Smith. Now we have a song by Chris Dreisbach. This is the hymn, Take My Life and Let It Be, from his album, Hymns with Friends. Take my life and let it be Consecrated, Lord, to Thee Take my moments and my days Let them flow in endless praise Take my hands and let them move At the impulse of Your love Take my feet and let them be Swift and beautiful for thee. Take it all, Lord. Take it all. Take it all, Lord. Take it all. Take my voice and let me sing. Always only for my King. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee. And take my silver and my gold, not a thing would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as you choose. Take it all, Lord. Take it all, take it all, Lord, take it all. Take my love, my Lord, I pour at your feet its treasure store. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. 
Next, we have a devotion from Pastor Tom Barthel and his blog Beard133.com. This is Tossing Aside All That Hinders. One morning, not too long ago, my three-year-old twins staggered sleepily out of their bedroom and into the living room. It wasn't long before sleep mode was replaced by play mode, and wooden blocks began to transform the landscape of the previously clean floor. They were so proud of their block towers, you'd think they had just built the Imperial Hotel in Tokyo. Suddenly, one of the twins stopped playing and stared at the living room wall in a mixture of alarm and astonishment. Hey, where is the TV? My wife and I had implemented a change. I had been reluctant to do it at first, but now, after a good seven months in, I can see it producing fruit. Most American millennials, myself included, have always known technology as part of family life. I can remember when my family first upgraded to a color television in the late 1980s. Someone gave it to us as a gift so we could watch PBS nature videos in color. That TV, and others which followed, was a blessing in many ways. Yet it wasn't long before it began to have a dominating presence in my life. Of course, there were good educational programs. Not all my time watching Sesame Street or Mr. Rogers was wasted but I think I could have survived, even thrived, without Disney afternoon every afternoon. I'll be the first to tell you that this was entirely my fault. No one made me watch the shows. I didn't have to get up Saturday morning for cartoons, but I could, so I did. I still have the same problem today when my wife makes cookies. They're available, so I eat them. Too many of them. As I grew, video games became a natural addition to my screen time, and I was often glued to them, completely oblivious to the real world and the passage of time. With such fond connection to the TV screen, I naturally mounted a large TV in the middle of my young family's living room wall. And it wasn't all bad. I know I'm not alone. I'm in the pastoral ministry, and I've been able to visit many homes and see how their living space is arranged. Most homes look just like the ones I grew up in. Of course, they all vary in size, comforts, and furnishings. But one thing is consistent in nearly every home, and that is the television screen. It is most often the center of attention in the home. Couches don't face other couches for conversation. They face the screen for absorption of content. If the living rooms of many homes were churches, the TV would be the altar, and the antennas, though now are mostly hidden, the crosses. In the past decade, this trend has been amplified by the tiny screens which everyone carries around. Even when friends and family are sitting at the same table or facing each other on the couch, conversation quickly dies as each person individually interacts with an online post or video. Don't get me wrong. I am a millennial. I use technology extensively for work and for leisure. My smartphone sometimes is like an extension of my hand, and I enjoy watching an evening movie with my family. I'm certainly not against technology or against using digital screens. But, as a father and a pastor, I am increasingly against the dominating force of technology in the home. I'm sure I was addicted to screen time. So were my children. How much easier wouldn't it be, my wife and I reasoned, to parent without all the screens and online connections to the whole world? We implemented the first step of our plan one night, 
as we took down the large central screen in our living room. That sort of helped. The children couldn't ask for TV anymore. We still have a projector that we set up on occasion for a family movie night. It's a bit of a hassle to set up, so we never do it mindlessly. It's easy to control its use. Evenings are now filled with reading aloud together as a family. I never thought my children would want their dad to read to them so much. Even the older ones insisted on it. The children enjoy playing the board games which previously only came out of the closets on holidays. They have discovered they liked chess. Music from their musical instruments echoes in the hallways more often. They create their own games and show interest in hobbies like never before. They create content instead of just receiving it. Easily, the most important change can be seen in the content we now make a point of receiving each day and every day. The Word of God. Bible reading is no longer so easily crowded out or dismissed. It has become a regular routine to open the pages of Scripture together in the quiet morning and evening hours. I'm reminded of the writer to the Hebrews who urges believers to throw off everything that hinders our race. The dominating force of technology was hindering our home. It was crowding out what we needed most and replacing it with things that were empty and unnecessary. It constantly threatened to ensnare us and our children. Yes, some things on the screen are good, but many things on the screen are not. And if you don't control it, it will control you and your home. We are happy with the steps that liberated us, but we weren't done yet. Those tiny screens still took up too much of our time. My wife and I knew we were still addicted to screen time. Facebook, YouTube, and news feeds dominated the empty spaces in our schedules. With full-time ministry, homeschooling, and parenting eight children, there weren't many empty spaces to grab. Screens were grabbing too much. Let's get rid of the Wi-Fi and Internet, we said. That was a game-changing step. I couldn't remember the last time I lacked access to fast Internet. That must have been before college. We still have access to mobile data on our phone plans, but it's metered and expensive. We're careful how much we use it. Home internet has been effectively reduced to almost nothing. People like to remind us that our children need to learn how to navigate the real world, a world dominated by digital screen content. While there is truth to that, I'd rather they first learn how to appreciate a world without it, a world without addiction, one where they get to experience firsthand all the wonderful things that often get replaced by screens didn't take long before we stopped missing the online browsing, and it didn't take the children long to notice with delight how they suddenly had their parents' full attention back. They didn't just have parents who were there, but parents who also had some spare moments and empty spaces in their schedules. And we noticed their imperial towers and starry night paintings more. You might say, I could never do that. It's too extreme. I need the screen. I thought that once too. Pray about it. Prioritize what your family needs most of all. Toss aside all that hinders and or ensnares. Evaluate how much control technology has and how much control you have. What could you do to regain more control? God bless your parenting decisions in this area. My children will always know technology is part of their life, but I pray that it will remain only 
apart and not the dominating force. And now we have a devotion from 1 Peter. This devotion was written by Pastor Mark Falk and recorded by Philip Wells. 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 12 through 17. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God, and if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? NIV 1984 How could Peter write such things? The Christians of his day saw their property confiscated, they were thrown into prison, they were even put to death in public arenas. If this is a blessing, I don't want to be blessed. But Peter set the tone with his own life. The one who cursed Jesus at the fire, unable to withstand the ridicule of a poor servant girl, became a bold confessor. Tradition says he was not only crucified, but crucified head down. When he and the apostles were beaten by the Jewish Sanhedrin, they rejoiced at being counted worthy to suffer for the name. These verses go to the heart of a theology that often takes second place. The theology of glory has replaced the biblical theology of the cross in many Christian minds. The word glory finds its way into Peter's words about persecution, but the glory is hidden, is it not? How can jail and poverty and death at the lion's mouth be glory? Even insults feel like something else than glory. In the outward Christian church, it is often seems that those who have walked away from the sound doctrine, those who accommodate their preachings and teachings to the whims of the world, those who no longer condemn sin as sinful, these churches prosper. True churches often beg for members. This is a cross, but it is one that we must bear. Indeed, true preachers and true churches ought to have a theology of the cross so deep in their hearts that any insult or harm borne for Christ brings joy, not tears. I confess that this is a difficult thing to preach, much less to do. Our flesh wants no pain, no cost, just a crown on our heads. Not only that, but it's possible to feel a false shame when we are attacked for doing exactly what we ought to do, confessing sin, calling others to join in that confession, and lifting up the ugly cross of Jesus as the true glory both of God, for it reveals love beyond understanding and comprehension, and of the church. One of the things that makes me rejoice when I take the time to contemplate is the way the cross dominates our church building and property. You cannot walk through the doors without walking on three crosses in our front walk. You cannot look forward to the front without seeing three crosses, the windows that dominate the building. Buildings can't preach, but symbols of the cross certainly lead us to remember. If only this preacher and those who listen to him always remember that the cross is center, that the cross we own is hidden, not evident in to ourselves or to the world, not without the eyes of faith, and that the Savior who died on the cross as a sacrifice for the sins of the world rose again on the third day. 
We are blessed if we throw our trust on the cross and are willing to bear the cross God gives to each of his children. Truly our glory is hidden, but the eternal glories of heaven are just over the horizon. And now to tell the story by Luke Italiano. This is called The Little Ones and was originally published on May 29th in 2015. The little one was all that was left? Samuel stood under the blazing sun, sweat stinging his eyes as he tapped his foot as he paced. The little one? What was God doing now? The big one wasn't good enough? God had rejected Saul. Big man Saul. He was perfect. He had the strength to lead the nation. And then... Then Saul rejected God. And that was Saul's own doing. Saul had been king. But he'd refused to listen to God on more than one occasion. Samuel grimaced at the memory. And now God wanted a new king, someone better. Go to Jesse. Go to Bethlehem and anoint a new king. I'll tell you who. Of course, Samuel had went. Well, after God had assured him of his safety, of course. Samuel called a sacrifice. Called Jesse and his kids. Jesse's eldest. Oh, what a man. If there was someone to stand up to Saul, it was this one. Oh. But God? God wouldn't have that. God had said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. All right, then. Second son. That must be it. Like a... Like Jacob and Esau, the younger getting the blessing. Of course! Nope. That one wasn't good enough either. And then Jesse brought out his third boy. And then his fourth son. And Jesse was getting nervous by now. He gestured quickly for the next young man. The fifth. The sixth. The seventh wasn't good enough either. And Samuel rubbed his eyes and looked over at Jesse. Are these all the sons you have? There's still the little one, Jesse answers, his nose wrinkling. But he's out tending the sheep. I won't even sit down until he gets here, Samuel answers. And now, under that hot sun... The scent of the heifer nearby, Samuel, waits. The entire town turned out for the sacrifice. They wait, too. The crowd shifts. Jesse's boys murmur among themselves. And Samuel waits. And finally, a youth scrambles into town, up the hill, a cloud of dust following him. Uh, kid looks good. He's ruddy, like... Esau was. He's a good-looking kid like Joseph was. And God says, Rise and anoint him. He is the one. 
Samuel takes out his oil and pours it over the boy's head. And there, in the presence of his father and all his brothers, looking on, angry, they weren't good enough. And at that moment, the Holy Spirit came on the boy and strengthened him in the faith. Samuel looked over to Jesse. What's the boy's name? Jesse licks his lips as he answers, David. Brothers and sisters, God looks at the heart. And that is a terrifying thing. Because from the heart comes all sin. Thank God that he's promised to remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. God has given you a heart that chases after him. Over the coming weeks, we will see how David became a man after God's own heart. And we will rejoice. And the story is true. We end our time together this week with a song by Koine. This is Lamb of God from their album, Visit.
You have been listening to Canonbound Podcast, episode 150. This podcast was first shared in February of 2020. You can visit canonboundpodcast.com to find old shows and links to the artists featured in this episode. We'd like to thank Chris Dreisbach and Koine for allowing us to feature their music this week. You can find more of Pastor Tim Smith at St. Paul's New Ulm website, splnewalm.org, under their Daily Devotions category. To tell the story is by Luke Italiano. You can find more from him at breadforbaggers.com. You can find Pastor Tom Barthel at beard133.com, where he has a blog advocating active Christian fatherhood. Music by Chris Dreisbach can be found at chrisdreisbach.com and Koine can be found at koinemusic.com. If you don't have a church home, we would encourage you to visit wells.net to find a Wells or ELS ministry location near you. Thank you for listening. God bless your day.